previously on the Sports Refuge podcast. I miss reading. I miss holding books. Like I was one of those people like, I don't like buying books. I love getting books from the library. I just like the library smell. From Delaware, almost live. This is a Sports Refuge podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 47 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. Competition is something that goes beyond the realm of sports. With my experience playing in competitive environments, including a stint on the game show Sports Jeopardy, and my days as a member of the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge team at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, there was contention, rivalries, and remarkable feats. Some people are unable to handle the environment, while others are able to rise to the occasion, just as some athletes do in sports. This week's guest, Meredith Esguera, is someone who understands the competitive trivia environment and the pressure that is involved. Esguera, a four-year participant of the University of Maryland Eastern Shore's HCASC team, is someone whose quiet demeanor hit a killer mentality as well as a vast trivia knowledge. In this episode, Esguera discusses what led to her path to UMES, as well as how she got into the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge and her experiences in the tournament. Meredith also discusses what it's like going to an HBCU and how an interest in astrology has led to a new outlook on life. And now, my interview with Meredith Esquera. When it comes to a lot of my guests, there's always a connection that I've had with so many of them, whether it's from my time as a journalist or my time growing up with them or even going to college. My next guest, Meredith Esquera, is someone I've been connected with a very long time. It started out past my time as a, I guess maybe an unofficial coach with my uh, Honda Campus All-Star Challenge team that I used to play for when I was at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And if you watch her, you look at her, you don't really think that she has really the ability to not only be this huge trivia nut, someone that I would say probably up there with many of the people I've played against or even people I've seen in action, but she is as I would call it, a stone-cold killer because you don't let the look fool you. She'll she'll get you really quickly. And that was one of the coolest things, watching Poetry in Motion, because she, uh, she could really rattle any really – some facts off her head, just like a lot of people who are involved in trivia or who are involved in a lot of these type of competitions because it's all about not only what you know but how fast you are. And I'm glad to have Meredith here to talk about some of her experiences – being a member of the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge and her background and how she got so interested in trivia and really a lot of information and knowledge. Thank you for being on the show today, Meredith. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. And thanks for all of that excessive fanfare. I'm, <laughs> it, um, it means a lot to me that you think that. And um, it, it was really a lot of hard work to try to learn all of that stuff. But um, I... I was really glad to be a part of it and to have something that really connected me with um, having a grander appreciation for black culture and black history. Um, you know, it was it was great. So thanks again for having me on here. And one of the things I always wanted to ask you, especially because I feel like it myself sometimes, is do you tend to not like the extra compliments sometimes people tend to throw your way and sometimes it feels a little uncomfortable I, I know that I have always been like that and it's been taking me years to try to get over things like that yeah it's funny that you say that because I feel more prone to giving 
compliments to people because I do have a deep admiration for what they do. And then on the flip side of it, it's difficult for me to accept it because um, I'm definitely one of those people who's more critical of myself and I hold myself to a higher standard sometimes. So, um, yeah, that's it's it's something that I... Um, I'm trying to learn to get used to how to how to accept compliments gracefully, and it's probably much easier for people to to feel like the interaction is going equally both ways, where you can give compliments and receive compliments equally. You know? Yeah, and I always think of the theory that they come up with the imposter syndrome, where sometimes, where everybody else on the outside sees how exceptional a person is, but that person sees that I can't believe I'm in this position. I, I feel like I'm living a lie. I'm not as good as I think I am. And that's something that I don't know nowadays, especially as we are millennials, maybe skewing a little older millennials, but I don't know if that's something that still comes into place as often. Maybe I don't think it happened to a lot of the people who are before us, the Gen Xers, but it's always something that I feel like still lingers there. And I'm like, sometimes I wonder, how did I make it here? And it, it always just, uh, I marvel at it. Yeah, I think it might come down to personality differences, too. I feel there's some people who are much more comfortable with accepting compliments because they have um, a certain self-concept of themselves. And for me, it's, um, you know, I... I I just try to do my best and hopefully um, people appreciate it and they're able to um, appreciate it for what it is. But then I always wonder, like, I'm hope I'm not setting this person up for disappointment, you know? <laughs> it's a lot of pressure when, when you feel that people have a certain image of you and to try to uphold that in, in everything. So, um yeah, like I like being in a position where I feel people can trust me and see me as reliable and competent. But um, I also um, have this subconscious fear of letting them down somehow by not always living up to their expectations, because who knows when that would be, you know? Yeah, no, I understand that completely. It, it brings me to the next question I was going to ask. When is the last mm -hmm. moment that you felt that you were super confident? And when was the last moment that you had maybe a shred of arrogance? Um, I think, I'm not sure if anybody's aware of when they're being arrogant. I think, um, at least for me, I, I feel that when I'm confident about something, it's because I've, I've had tons of experience at doing it and because um, it, it just comes easily to me to figure out what to do next. So like a lot of areas in my life where um, I've worked really hard to perfect a skill. So for example, one of the hobbies I've recently taken up is sewing. And so um, it feels really good when I'm able to make something with the craftsmanship that I'm trying to arrive at after tons and tons of trial and error type of situations. And um, then I know, yeah, I know the next time I make this, it's going to turn out amazing. And um, and so I guess that's one form of confidence. There's other areas in my professional and personal life where I know that 
um, there's an area I have a ton of expertise on because I've researched it a lot or um, I've just worked with it a lot. So I know that people would be able to count on me or I can I can feel fairly confident about the information I'm about to share. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of pride that comes from feeling like you know what you're talking about. And I definitely feel that um, there isn't one specific moment that I can recall where I think, wow, this feels really good and I feel really confident about what I'm saying. And as far as arrogance goes, um, I feel like I'm much more prone to see it in others <laughs> than I am to recognize it in myself because, um, you know, there there are times when I'm listening to something that someone's saying and they just seem all too eager to take on the praise and um, to to speak highly of themselves. And then when they compared to what they're actually producing or the information that they're sharing, I'm thinking, okay, there's some sort of discrepancy here between like high, how highly you're um, viewing the quality of your advice or the value of your advice and what it is that you're actually offering. But I do find that, you know, people tend to feel much more at ease or more credible. Like these people who speak of a high degree of confidence are much more credible than people who are a bit more reluctant because, you know, people will always accept you at your own reckoning, whether you think too highly of yourself or or not. Like they seem to feel like, okay, well, this person seems to know what they're talking about and they seem really, um, really confident in what they're saying so I can get behind that. Whereas someone who might be a little bit more unsure of themselves, um, when when there isn't any other information to go off of, it's harder for people to feel as confident in that other person's ability to um, know what they're talking about. So anyway, um, that was a long tangent there. But yeah, like, I mean, there are just little instances here and there where I I definitely feel um, really happy with what I'm doing, and I, I I you know I'm not shy about being able to share some information with somebody or tell them about something I'm excited about. But there's not one moment that happens to stick out where I can remember any of that. And before we talk about playing for the Honda Campus All-Star Challenge team at, at UMES at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. The first thing I would like to ask is, you're a Californian. What was it like making the move eastward towards Maryland? And was there a culture shock? What was really the biggest thing you had to get adjusted to? Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything specific. I, I mean, there's a lot of different examples, like the... The scenery was a lot different. I mean, in California, we we don't have the same type of climate that we have up here, so there aren't as many um, there aren't as many of the nice trees that we have here in Maryland. It's much more green. Um, I came from a part of California that's notorious for having bad air quality, and so coming here, that was a little bit different. It's more humid over here for some reason. 
Um, so, you know, geographical differences aside, like there's definitely cultural differences too. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel by nature, I'm more of an introverted person. So, um, I wasn't really as able to see, um, I guess, cultural differences and openness and, and friendliness as much. But um, another difference, obviously, was that where I was in California, there isn't as big a population of African Americans. So, um, you know, going from a culture that was more so a, a mix of um, whites and Asians and um, Latino people and then coming over here and then all of my classmates are black, um, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of stuff that I just definitely wasn't really aware of. And I had a difficult time adjusting only because like, um, well, mostly because of that. And like, there are certain things, I'm sure there's a lot of people who aren't as comfortable at admitting their own ignorance about black culture in general and um, privilege and just growing up in a culture that doesn't have any of those things. I mean, it was, it was really educational for me. And um, there were a lot of times that I felt like it was helpful to humble myself when um, you know, people were trying to teach me stuff. But fortunately, I feel like I have a lot of friends that um, did it in a really um, kind way. And it, you know, if it weren't for that, I think I probably might have, <laughs> I might have had some psychological trauma from that because I'm, you know, I'm a pretty sensitive person. So learning all of this stuff, um, you know, there were some times where it wasn't easy, but I'm also really grateful for people who um, were able to kind of, you know, put me in check, so to speak, in a way that wasn't too unkind. What was one of those moments? I know you mentioned that. What was really one of the biggest things that you had to get acclimated to, I guess, culturally? What was the one thing that sort of uh, maybe hit you with some realism? Uh, I think, I mean, again, it's it's hard to pick out, like, specific moments. But, you know, like, I... <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was anything really specific. Like, I definitely had, um, like, I, I definitely had moments where I was really um, uncomfortable. And, like, the only ones that really stick out to me when are moments where I felt like someone was making an unfair um like uh, just just some sort of unfair, rude comment. Like I remember I was in some sort of economics class and um, for whatever reason, there was some guy in there and like he, and like unprovoked, he would just be like, well, you wouldn't understand because you aren't black and you've never gone through any of the struggles that anybody else has in this room. And I'm like, where is this coming from? And um, I got paired up with him for some reason, I think just because he was sitting next to me for an assignment. He was just like making all of these random comments. And um, 
So I wasn't really sure how to take that, but like I can kind of understand why someone might have those assumptions about me. And, you know, maybe it was the way I carried myself or the way I talked or something, but like, you know, I wasn't really... I don't, I don't know. I guess because I'm remembering it, I'm wondering if I'm still carrying some bitterness away from that incident because it just seemed like, what, like, why is this random guy telling me this stuff? But I think in, in more nuanced ways, I was realizing, like, I, how I had, like, these unconscious prejudices and um, how, like, they were playing into my perception of other people, just like how people were acting out on their unconscious prejudices about me. And um, for example, like, I guess another example I have is my voice is really um, what some people would say unusual. And um, I, I have a lot of people asking me like, oh, is that your real voice? Is it like, do you, do you always talk like that? And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and and I definitely, um I I reach a higher pitch when I'm excited or nervous around people I don't know. And so it, it didn't feel great to have people just questioning my identity, so to speak. And, and I'm thinking, okay, well, on the other hand, like just by being black, I, I feel like you have people who do that to you all the time. So maybe I'm getting a taste of what that feels like and, and you know, you know, it's good to be able to have this experience to empathize. And, you know, there's a lot of things I don't necessarily feel qualified to comment on because I don't, you know, I, I don't want to say anything that would be offensive or um, anything like that. But, you know, it's good to have, again, like people who, who keep you in check and um, know, like, are are really kind when they try to educate you about certain things because I mean I don't like I don't know <laughs> I don't know a lot of these these experiences that people are going through and then um, on the other hand it, it, it's really crazy when you're in a situation with a lot of people who are so different from you and um, they just make like offhand comments that, that seem misdirected or you know they're questioning your authenticity as a person and you're wondering why, because it has no bearing on like your interaction with them other than they're finding something really unusual to pick a bone at, you know? And I think human beings are like that all the time. You could see someone, nicest person in the world, and they can just have a look on their face where they look like they're angry all the time. And I always think of that, oh, look at him. You know, I, I can just think about it a lot of time, and I don't want to just limit it to black culture, but you can see a lot of people say, oh, look at him, thinking he's better than everybody else. Hasn't even said a single word, hasn't even opened their mouth, and there's always that presumption that all of a sudden somebody thinks they're above someone. Or the certain look that, oh, he's mad all the time. He just looks that way. Hey, you yeah, never know. You know. I have some mixed feelings on that, the whole, because um, I, like, sometimes I can be deep in thought, and then I, I have... There's a. I have a friend in mind that I'm, I'm still Facebook friends with, who went to you know the same college that we did, and um, I, you know I'd just be walking somewhere, he'd bump into me, and or paths or would cross, and he would say something like, "Hey, keep your head up, um, keep smiling," you know, and I, I know that it's supposed to come off as it's a well-intentioned comment, but I've remembered that someone actually did that to me 
and I was in the office and I just had received some like not very great news and um you know she said smile it can't be that bad can you can like can it be that bad and I was thinking I you know sometimes um a remark like that or like just just thinking that can be really insensitive because you have no idea what that person is going through so before making that conclusion even though it's difficult or like it 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 would just be good if um you know people could find something else to say like you know like how are you how are you feeling or um how, is there anything like i can help you with you know, something that acknowledges that what whatever they're feeling is valid and at the same time makes it so you're you're helping the situation and not making like basically shaming them for the way their face looks and um you know so that's just a I mean, that's that's a learning process for everybody but it's a good thing to be conscious of too like self-aware of how your um your nonverbal cues and your facial expressions are communicating a message about you that you wouldn't have intended to um communicate so if if people were like you know i i'm I'm not immune to this either, but um if if everyone could do a better job at, at being self aware of how their demeanor their facial expressions, everything about how they carry themselves, if they can be more aware about like what those types of, what types of messages are coming across in that behavior, then, you know, people would come across the way that they should or that they want to. And um, I definitely don't want people to see me as grumpy or unpleasant just because I, I have a certain facial expression um, but then again, there are definitely people who, um, you know, like maybe that is what they're, they're trying to, um, like that, that is the type of, um, communication that they're trying to get across. So, yeah, like as long as like you're saying what you want to say about yourself, then do whatever with your face. <laughs> I had two notes on that one. I was thinking you were talking about people talk about your voice i was going to say it sounds a lot lower than i last remembered it that's one of the things i was thinking i that was one thing that stood out to me and another thing you were talking about going back to that one classmate you had that just really had all these comments and i always think especially with maybe people like us who tend to retain memory and retain information and things like that you not only retain information and and positive memories but bad things tend to linger in there as well for a very long time, if you can ever exercise it. Yeah, that's that's true. I feel like um, we're more prone to remembering uh, remembering stuff that, it, you know, it's funny what, what type of information we retain, I guess, if it if it gives us some sort of feeling of shame. <laughs> like, I feel that that's what I tend to remember most, like the stuff that made me particularly um, upset, even if it was, like, on a subconscious level. Like, memories um, that I attach to events that um, had a more, uh, you know, a more 
specific emotion attached to it, one that was like a, a, a higher, I, I, I'm not sure if I can find the right words to describe it, but anytime I was really happy to hear some type of news or um, really sad, like m- more of those um, highs and lows are what I tend to remember. And it's amazing what types of mundane memories make it into that remember me box. And I definitely been trying to work at being more um, relaxed when I'm around certain people or just in certain contexts. But, you know, there's definitely times where, um, like, that memory of people telling me, yeah, I, you know, I think if you talked in a lower-pitched voice... <laughs> Um, it would be easier for people to to listen to you. I mean, that definitely stuck with me. But I guess what you're hearing now is the result of me, like, just trying to get myself in the right mind frame for talking with you. And and more specifically, because, you know, I I don't talk to people on the phone very often, um, much less so, like, people I haven't seen for a really long time unless it's like a, a, a special occasion of some sort. So I was more so prepared for this and you were telling me about it for a while. But, you know, if, if this were a different situation, then maybe I wouldn't sound like this or I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't feel as relaxed, you know? So um, I guess it just depends on the context um, and like, if I'm able to get myself in the right headspace to be able to talk with someone that I can curate how things come across. And that might sound disingenuous in some ways it probably is, but, um, you know, like I do find myself trying to adjust my behavior to make whoever I'm with more comfortable. And I really don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like I, I just, trying to be considerate of whoever I'm with and, you know, appropriate for the situation. Yeah, no, I can understand that. And I even think about the term, as they would say, code switching, where, you know, you talk to, I'll use an example, you talk to your black friends differently than you would talk to your to your non-black friends differently. And, and it's such a different thing because certain things that, unless someone is very relatable to that, it seems like, you just have to remember what audience you're focusing towards and who you're speaking with, because sometimes you can talk to someone who doesn't know about a certain thing and it'll go right over their head. But other people, they'll know and they'll pick up right on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting that you said that. Like, I, I find that it's much easier for me when I'm talking to people, like, and, and I really don't feel that I do this consciously, but, like, I, I can pick up on their mannerisms really easily and, and not even be aware of it. And it sucks because later I'll think about it and I'm like, was that me? <laughs> am, I, am I being myself in that moment because I'm adapting myself to what me that feels most comfortable when I'm with that person? And, um, you know, I, I haven't really felt that that topic specifically merits all of the self-analysis that um, I would probably give it if if I had the time to go crazy about it. But, like, I, I can definitely think of things where, I mean, it makes sense to present the self that 
works best with that person. So, for example, like, I've been finding out that more and more of my friends have political views that are diametrically opposite mine, and I am not about to um, ruin those friendships by, like, going on and on about, like, my liberal tendencies and that kind of thing, because um, I just... I'm a non-confrontational person by nature, and I don't particularly enjoy debating. I don't particularly enjoy talking about politics. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to still have those friendships, those long-standing friendships I've had for a really long time. And I feel like talking about politics would only damage um, our relationship or widen the gap that's already there. So, I mean, most people, there are a lot of people I know who wouldn't go that route, but that's the personal choice I've made is that, okay, I'm not going to talk about that with people I care about when I, if I know it's only going to upset them. And if I know that it won't lead to anything good or to them changing their mind on anything. So luckily, most of the people I am in regular contact with (laughs) don't try to engage me in that way, but... When I when I see them posting things on Facebook, I'm like, no, I don't really want to participate in whatever they have going on there. Um, so that's one area. There's, um, you know, in, in terms of my just things like topics and interests I like to talk about, there's certain things that I'm really into that I feel um, – would be too difficult to have a discussion with people because I I don't feel that they would be open-minded to what I have to share or appreciative of it. So I I only really, you know, I keep track of like what interests I have in common with someone and I just try to stick to those. And um, if they come to me and seem willing to talk about um, one of the interests we don't share, one of the um, things we don't seem to have in common, then I'm, you know, it's easier to engage them that way, but I'm not someone that, um, I'm not someone that likes to engage people in, in divisive topics because it really just isn't something that I enjoy. And, you know, I, I've always been able to admire people that are, you know, they, they have no hesitation when it comes to engaging people in, and confronting them in, in difficult conversation topics and somehow they're able to do it with um, grace and with maintaining the dignity of each person. But um, it's, you know, it's too stressful for me. So I just don't do that. What are some of your interests? I feel like while I've known you for such a long time, I don't really know a lot of the your interests. I know you mentioned you've taken up sewing, but what are some of the other interests that you may think that maybe people may not share an interest in or share commonality in? Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting to get <laughs> to open that box of worms. But um, so, for example, um, I am really into science, but I also am really into astrology and um, that's something that became more recent. Like I've, um, I've been reading a lot of books on it and, um, on the actual mechanisms that make astrology make sense. And this is different from, I guess, the conventional way that people come across astrology, like from online gossip articles and that kind of thing. Like I had like a pretty, 
rough breakup about a year or two ago, and it really depressed me. And of course, in a search for answers, I turned to different methods of spirituality, and studying astrology more made me appreciate how people who actually know what they're talking about use it to come to terms with their karma in life, with the set of circumstances that they were born with, with their personality, um, with how they use it to become more self-aware. And so when I look at it that way, it makes a lot of sense, but um, it doesn't mean that I don't believe in other stuff. Science and astrology, they're mutually exclusive topics. Like you can believe in one and still, you, you can still believe in another system that's used for completely different purposes. So I feel like that's like that's a whole discussion in, in itself, but I've been able to study up on it enough to where I feel um, it's very useful for understanding myself and the timing of different events in my life and for being able to understand why I get along with certain types of people and why I don't get along with other types of people. And I, I know that I might have some friends who are listening to this and they're like, oh God, like why? Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like something that I would really be into, but it really helped me through a difficult time. And so I'm really grateful for that. But more than, more than that, I, I actually enjoy learning about it. And like, there's a whole mythology behind the different zodiac signs that I really enjoy. There's um, a lot of history behind it from different astrologers dating back to Hellenistic times, like in ancient Greece and, um, and also in, in ancient Indian history, because there's like Western astrology and like um, what's called Vedic astrology, which actually is based more on the moon, while Western astrology is based on the sun. And so there's that. I also got really into tarot reading. And one reason I really like it is because it helps me to understand my intuition about certain people and certain events better. Um, and it's it's really an artistic and poetic way of being able to make sense of feelings that you have deep down and about things that are going on in your life. And like another thing I really appreciate about it is all of the different tarot decks of cards that are out there. So um, you learn about this whole different symbolism in there and the way that different artists interpret that, that with their art and how it um, it comes out so beautifully is something I really appreciate too. So those are interests that are difficult for me to talk, talk about with other people. Mostly um, I have a lot of friends who are super Christian and they somehow think that this is associated with the devil and um, just with other taboo stuff that they can't really comprehend, but I'm like, okay, well, if you took, I mean, you know, I'm still, um, I still go to church regularly, but more um, out of tradition. Um, but if, <laughs> if people could like understand and appreciate like what, 
what about it is actually useful to people instead of like passing it off as, you know, as, as something that, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of people who would be immediately dismissive of those new interests that I have. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to bring it up because I feel like they have to um, come across it more so the way I did. Like maybe they have some sort of earth shattering moment where they need to make sense of what's going on in their life. And, um, you know, now I'm in a lot of different groups that do readings and that type of thing. And, you know, there's always people in there who are like, well, like, does this person love me? And, like, I'm going through such a crazy time in my life right now. Like, when is stuff going to get better? And so people who are able to use it for legitimate reasons can find wisdom and insight that helps them to grow from that. But then, of course, there's, like, some so, so-called so online psychics that give this whole um give astrology and tarot a bad name because they're basically preying on these people's vulnerabilities and there there are times that are really desperate and then like they're willing to pay any sort of money to um rid themselves of the pain and it's it's really horrible (laughs) it's it's a it's an awful thing to watch and so I'm, i'm constantly trying to educate people on what tarot and astrology are useful for and what I what I feel they really aren't useful for and to be wary of people who can promise that oh yeah I can make this all go away if you pay me all of this money it doesn't work like that when it comes down to it it's just it's a way of learning how to accept what's coming next and um, to go about it in a way that resonates with your higher self, so to speak, like your ideal version of yourself and um, like being being able to make decisions, confident, well-informed decisions that will lead you in the right direction, you know? And it's also a lot about studying, like, you know, like the whole, I guess the whole reason we're having this discussion is because you kind of wanted to catch up and see what was going on with me since HCASC. I, I, I've always loved learning about new stuff and there's nothing that will take my desire to incorporate new things that I've learned into my life and also to only make decisions that are backed by evidence and facts and history and the only reason I'm still doing anything I'm doing is because one I enjoy it and two because I've seen results that give me evidence to show that it works for me or works for a lot of people. Um, But yeah, so I mean, those are like, those are things that I'm doing now that are different from the last time you talked to me. And I'm not always like super uh, eager to tell people about because I think I need to be in a place where I can trust them um, to not immediately be dismissive of whatever I'm going to say because then it's just wasted breath. And um, I, I also feel like they have to be um, open to how it might be useful in some ways because I, I don't, I, again, I don't like engaging with people when I feel like the discussion isn't going to be productive and people aren't going to gain from it in some way. No, I understand that, and I always can consider myself to be more open to, you know, what people feel and how and what's in their minds. 
I just myself would say, man, I wish I could feel like I'm doing something more productive than that. I feel like everything I do is pretty minor. No, I don't. You know, it's funny you say that. Like, we, you know, I, I keep up with you on Facebook, and I, I feel like everyone has that this idea of themselves, um, and you know, half of the people that are trying to fill in the narrative in their life are looking at what they've done and they, they can't really, it's hard because like they're constantly comparing themselves to where they feel they should be. But, um, you know, it seems like you're doing really cool stuff. I mean, like I see like stuff that you cook and you post that on Facebook. Like I particularly don't enjoy cooking (laughs) and like I watch all these cooking shows sometimes to keep me company like at home when like no one else is around and um, I'm like, yeah, I really wish I could make that. Like recently I really got into the show, Great British Bake Off and like everything looks really amazing. And then I look at stuff, you you occasionally post pictures of whatever you've cooked for dinner. Um, and I'm like, that looks really good too. But again, it's like an inve- a time investment type of situation where it's, like everyone's doing cool stuff with their time. It's just like they think of all the other stuff they could be doing with their time that they're not doing. And then it makes them feel like they're lacking in some way. And, you know, the best piece of advice I got was um, from uh, an older woman I was, was friends with when I used to play violin with her at church. And she like, I was talking to her about something and like how, um, you know, I, I, had all these regrets about what I wish I could have done. And she was just saying, you know, I look back on my life sometimes and um, I realize that I did everything I wanted to do. Like you wouldn't be doing what you're doing with your time if it wasn't something that you really valued and enjoyed. So even if that includes a lot of time doing activities that some people would shun as not being productive, like watching movies or something like that. Like those were choices that you made that um, made you really happy in that moment. So to harshly judge yourself or to feel bad because like that's what you choose to do in your time. And instead of like other things you could have been doing is, is not really fair because I feel like at any given moment you're doing exactly what you want to be doing and you're doing, you're like in the place that you need to be. So I feel like I look at what you're doing and I'm like, it seems seems like he's doing well and he's happy and he's cooking some really good stuff. Um, So I can say at least from what I'm seeing that it looks like you're doing pretty well, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah, and I always say that what people don't see with a lot of those is while the visual while the visual look of those photos of the food looks great, sometimes they don't always turn out as well as they could when you're eating it. You know, sometimes you get a perfect picture, just like the the perfect representation of social media. You see what people are doing on there, and you think it's fantastic, but there's so much more to it. There are times when I've made dishes it's undercooked, it's overcooked, or it doesn't taste like taste right. I missed something in it or, you know, just little things. And and it's interesting, that whole social media perception. I mean, the food, if look, a picture does say a thousand words, but, man, the experience of it, that's something completely different. Yeah. Um, you know, it's nice that you're 
you would admit that. Um, but yeah, I mean, at least you were able to get something on a plate. <laughs> and, um, you know, it sounds, it sounds like you enjoy doing it at least. So whatever people I feel are taking pictures of and sharing like that, those are things that they really enjoy doing. And so I'd feel like um, when they see that, the, my my initial reaction might be one of envy at first, but then I also feel like this sense of I, I'm proud of them for um, being open about what they like to do and, and then being enthusiastic about sharing it because um, I think envy is really just another form of motivation and inspiration. Like it makes you think, okay, like that's something else I want to be doing. And then maybe at some point, like I can take that up because if this person can do it, then I could do it too. And, um, you know, so yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you, especially before we start getting into our discussion about HCASC, but seeing your personality and I feel like it's very similar to mine, uh, introverted and sometimes being soft-spoken, but I have to ask, were you in drama? Did you do plays when you were in high school or middle school? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did all of that. In, in high school, I feel like I was really motivated to, um, like, I, I feel like I, I try to center my identity around achieving whatever I could in, in high school. And I, I did really enjoy doing drama and plays and stuff like that. I had a really awesome drama teacher, too, and I think that might have been part of it. But, yeah, it's it's fun. Like, I, I liked being on a stage and making people laugh because mostly I was in a lot of comedies. I liked being able to be in another identity and, like, explore what it might be to be that person. <laughs> and... um you know, it's it's weird. Like, it, it, I have this, I guess there's this dichotomy between my real life, um, more shy personality, and then situations where I feel like I like to have that kind of attention. And I like, I really enjoy um, having an audience that appreciates me or um, thinks I'm funny. So... You know, you can have, you can be part of both worlds when, when you do that. Like, you can have, like, a completely different personality and then one that's quiet, one that enjoys solitude and alone time and being introspective. And then on the other, you can, in other parts of your life, you can have situations where you have an outlet for making people laugh and being louder and, and more outspoken. So... It was a really fun thing to do, and, like, I I feel that a lot of the people I knew that were doing drama, um, one thing we all had in common was, was that we were all naturally creative, and um, we liked finding different ways of expressing ourselves. So it was fun getting to know those people because, you know, they, they, did, they did have a natural talent, and um, even though... A lot of them were quiet like me. Um, we were like I found them all to be really great conversationalists too. So it was it was fun to have that kind of network around me when I was in high school. One more thing I always had to ask before we start getting to the HCAST stuff because I it's a starting uh-huh. to become a question that I like asking people when it comes to this whole process. If there was a movie about your life, who would play you? And then to follow that up. What is the celebrity that most people say you resemble? 
okay. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any celebrity I feel would, um, what I would have play me. You know, I don't get compared books wise to a lot of people, but I remember, um, we, there was someone on our team who told me that I reminded her a lot of Winnie Cooper. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, gosh, I've never watched, um, I've never watched that show. So I don't know who that is. So I get, who is that? Jenica McKellar. That's who it is. And so, um, anyway, like I looked her up on Wikipedia and like, it was very, a very flattering comparison because she's gorgeous and she's also like a masked person or she really enjoys, she really enjoys doing that now. So I don't know if I would necessarily have her play me, although I'm not really sure if, like, that answers your question. But as far as people that I get compared to a lot looks-wise, I think I've had some people say I look like Michelle Branch, but I can't see it. So <laughs> a lot of people I feel that I resemble but it's always flattering when someone thinks of an, a very attractive celebrity and they're like, oh, you look a lot like her. And I'm like, that's, that's so sweet of you. <laughs> Thanks. So. I had always said Phoebe Cates from, I always think of her from oh, Gremlins. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know, she's doing pretty well these days, I've heard. Um, and she's, she was gorgeous, too. I've, I never saw Gremlins or, like, a lot of these 80s movies. It's travesty, I know. But I've seen clips of her, and she's really beautiful. So, um, thanks. <laughs> and now as we start getting into our discussion about HCAST, first of all, I have to ask, what yeah. led to going to UMES? And, and then from there, what led to your decision to try out for HCAST? Okay, so as far as what led me to going to UMES, I got a full-ride scholarship over there. So there were a couple of colleges in California that I got accepted to that I would have felt really happy about going to. But economically, it was the best decision. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that I ended up going there. Um, as far as what led me going to HCASC, I had a roommate that I think had saw some sort of... Um, I, she knew about tryouts for some reason, so we both ended up going together, and, um, and that's how I ended up there. And then I ended up staying because, like, I felt like I, I think I got, like, an unhealthy addiction to um, just the thrill of, like, getting questions right. You know, I was, like, one of those annoying kids in school that, like, had a know-it-all and stuff, but... Um, and it was on, on the other hand, like I, I found it really enjoyable to learn about new stuff. So um, that was a really good outlet for it. And um, you know, I, there were so many smart people on our team, and I'm actually really excited because one of my team members is moving from Philadelphia to Maryland. She accepted a teaching position over here, so I'm going to try to reconnect with her um, when she gets settled and stuff. And I felt really cool, like being around people who knew so much and were naturally curious. And um, I've, you know, I've always been drawn more to people who have an intellectual side to them. And I felt like I found people who I had that in common with, and you know, we had an affinity for the same things and for each other. And I had always thought, man, because I, I remember I'm sitting there, I'm helping out. 
I believe it was Eldon at the time before Ms. Noble took over. And I'm sitting there like watching you play. And I'm like, wow, she's good. She's really good. And I'm like, and I always think, especially because after I had left and, and I was into journalism, I didn't have the opportunity to do it as much anymore. I uh-huh. just noticed, honestly, the, your legend grew. It was just like you had become dominant. That's how good you were. And I had always thought, even after that one year, because that was a year removed from my senior year where we didn't do anything. That was a year after we had made it to the finals. And I was thinking, man, if I had just sat out my senior year and then did this year, and I just thought, man, we would have easily rolled past everybody because I think a team like that where everybody's firing on all cylinders, and I I can easily say, and I look at your team, and I'm like, man, I could have been a piece on there because I would have been one to be a part of that because I always remember all my years playing, when I played, me and, and Matthew Lang, we were always, I always felt like, especially when you have a team, any team in HCAS, you never want to have a team where it's just a one-person show because sometimes you can see those players tend to get short-circuited or shut down. I remember just playing UDC, and they had this one player. His name is Michael Gabriel, and he was he was fairly dominant and pretty good. And then we sat and watched him when UDC was in the playoffs, and he short-circuited during uh, one of the playoff games. But we always saw that if you have not only a well-balanced team, but if you have two dominant scorers, that always tends to uh, put a little pressure on somebody who ends up feeling like they have to put up the bulk of the scoring. Because I've been on both ends of that where one year you have a balanced team and everything's working fine, and then the next year you're the only one who's pulling up the slack, and then you just got to try to find out, okay, what can I do? What more can I do? As opposed to, okay... They got this. I got this. We already know. We won't cross over any category unless we are 100% sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it helps you get to appreciate your team members better because there's always blind spots that people have when it comes to their interests. And for me, that's always been sports. Like, I've never been good at them. I've never watched them, really. And so that's an area I didn't know a whole lot about. And, you know, another unique thing about the HCAS quiz bowl stuff was that um, there were a lot of Bible questions. And I mean, um, I thought of myself as a devout Catholic, but I never, you know, that's not something I'm, I'm well versed in, no pun intended. And, you know, there were like, it made me, it makes you really appreciate other people and their strengths. And also it, lights a fire under your belly. It makes you want to learn more about certain topics that you know that you would be really good at at learning. And um, it made me learn about like all these books I haven't read and all of these other these things I would never have thought to look into if it weren't for that event, bringing everybody together. And yeah, it's funny that you're, you're mentioning this because I'm forgetting um, that it's been so long since I've played in any type of competitive quiz bowl like that. Because it's it's a shame because I feel like it would <laughs> there some like there has to be a way that we can get it to catch on to where like you know like this would be a more widespread thing because it's a lot different from trivia night and from like other types of trivia games. Like there's a there's a competitive element to it that isn't the same as you just going and walking into a local bar and doing that or like going on Jeopardy or or anything. It's really unique to HCASC 
And I think it's, I feel like what I would compare it to most is like the competitive spirit that you see on some of these reality competition types of shows, like MasterChef or, um, <laughs> or like any of these things that you're, you're watching, because there is this, this feeling of solidarity that you have with other people who are playing with you and against you. And it's, it's a bond that's specific to this um, community and game itself. So I'm thinking, you know, that's part of it. And you know, I, I haven't thought about a lot of these things until I started talking to you about it just now. Going into a game, what was your routine? What was your mindset like once you got in? Were you in such a locked-in zone where you were just like a racehorse on blinders where you saw nothing else, all you heard was a question, and how did that go? Because to me, when I was playing... It's just sort of those stereotypical things where it's like everything zones out. It's all black, and all you hear is the voice of the moderator. And sometimes it's going at a a perfect cadence, a perfect tone. Where okay, I know this. It's not like where it's like someone's reading a million miles away. That's maybe if you get thrown into it in the beginning, and it felt like boom, boom, boom. Everything's coming from out of nowhere, and then you just sort of try to to focus and then get in line with it. Yeah, I definitely say that. Um, I got into some sort of headspace that was only specific to that game. And because uh, all of 100% of my focus was just on being able to score points and listen for clues that would help me ring in faster. And so, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, and this is something that I know a lot of players would be really familiar with is that they put the more obscure trivia about a certain person or event at the beginning of the question. So like those were the facts that I would try to really immerse myself with when I was learning about stuff, like stuff that you would not know at all about um, historical figures or events. Like the like all of those really obscure bits of information were at the beginning of the question. And then as the question progresses, then you hear um, some of the more lower hanging fruit or the or the more widely known trivia about a person or event. And so, you know, I would, I was like, my strategy just became, okay, I just need to not only gain an appreciation for um, what I'm answering questions on from learning about them, but I also have to like if I if I do have to memorize anything at all, then it'll be like some of this more obscure stuff because that's how I can ring in faster than anybody else. And um, you really had to be a good listener to excel at that game because if you if you're somebody that kind of zones out really easily and um, maybe has more trouble with that aspect of it, then I think it, it'd probably be harder for you to. Um, to jump in but yeah like different kinds of questions you know there were like I had different strategies for each type and I think like going back there's a whole lot of different things <laughs> that I would have done differently but that's what sticks out to me the most is you know like as you're learning about things that will help you in answering HCAS questions um, having an inherent appreciation for a topic helps you to memorize stuff better or to have a better memory or a working memory of facts that are related to it. 
but also just knowing that more obscure stuff helps you to ring in way faster than other people would. So I understand getting praise for it, uh, but on the other hand, it all comes down to being a really good listener and to um, just answering questions right on stuff that you're already really into learning about. And if you're really into it, then it'll, it'll help you remember stuff that is kind of more obscure. And um, those are usually the, the questions that you can ring in the fastest on and also score you the most points when there's like questions that have multiple parts to them. And um, it was really fun doing that. And I always think you talk about certain things that'll just tip you off at the beginning of a question. I always think mm-hmm. game one of the championship against Morehouse, uh, 2004. First question was read, stolen his image was. All I needed was four words because I remember a story that I was reading on the website Zap to it before it became TV by the numbers. And it was a story about how a bolted down golden statue of Yoda was stolen out of a truck when the truck driver went in to get a cup of coffee. By the time the truck driver came back, the bolted down statue was gone. All the other Star Wars statues were still in the truck, except for a bolted down Yoda statue that was just stolen. It was just taken in broad daylight. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, another, it's funny because they they added another clue in how the, um, in the syntax of how that question was worded because of how Yoda talks. (laughs) And, um, and like it, you know, I'm really glad that you were able to recognize that so quickly um, because I feel like, you know, again, that's like something that some people wouldn't have caught on to right away. And it's funny to think about from the HCAST days, and I know that that HCAST has changed in format where it's non-recognizable to anybody who played really, I'd say, prior to 2010. It's, it seems like it's completely different, and I've watched it, and it's like... I just, it's not the same. It's not the one that we all grew up playing, and it's not the same now. They only, they play with three players on each side. There's categories you pick from, and it's a lot more timed, and it's so different. And But I would say the one thing about HCAST, it definitely helped me being able, as we always call it, the sticks, using the buzzers. Lockout system definitely helped me when I played on Sports Jeopardy because I'm used to a buzzer. I just started getting back in second nature. I had my old grip. I know everybody, when they played, I'm assuming you did as well. When you had the lockout and the buzzer, you used the thumb, right? No, I used my index finger on my right hand. So I think that was the, the finger I was most comfortable with. I think we're kindred spirits because I started using the thumb freshman year, and I remember what made me switch to the index finger was, and and for people who aren't understanding the index finger, it's sort of like you're spraying bug spray or or aerosol spray. You're using that one finger, and it's sometimes secured on the on the buzzer. Sometimes some people would have theirs to the side, but I'd have mine maybe right on top, gently, so I wouldn't buzz in too quickly. But yeah, I started doing that. I was watching a boxing match where I saw one of the boxers sort of taunt one of the other ones using the way the way he had his glove held up. He held it up and it's sort of like an index finger, like he's pointing at him. And I just started switching to that mode. And that was basically the grip that I used from the end of college at HCAS to when I did Sports Jeopardy. 
And I felt maybe it's a mental thing, but I felt the index finger might be quicker than the thumb, or it could be just sort of one of those placebo effects where you think, okay, maybe it isn't, but I'm so used to it, and I feel like it makes me faster. Because that was one of the things I would hear everybody else say, man, he's just so fast on a buzzer. And sometimes you can't pick it up. But, I mean, because even on Jeopardy's website, they have a thing about how different people held their held the buzzer. Some people hold it up. Some people hold it to their side. I saw one guy mm-hmm. who was sort of doing the douchey thing with his arms crossed and, and in his hand. But, um, yeah, it, it's just crazy. Yeah. I never thought about it. I never knew that you used the index finger because I feel like it's it's something that you don't see every day. I think I you know I, I really don't remember. I'm trying to think of like my other teammates and like what fingers they use, but I know I never really paid attention. Like I just I guess we were all doing um, what we felt most comfortable with. Yeah, and after that, I just felt like boom, I'm faster and faster. And the biggest difference between HCast and Jeopardy is where you can just buzz in at any point in HCast. And I, I again. I, not seeing the new format in a while. I'm not sure how different mm-hmm. it is unless they've reverted back to the original one, but I, I don't think they have. With Jeopardy, you're on even playing field because you got the lockout system. You're looking at the question. You're waiting till, in my case, Dan Patrick finishes the question, and then once the board lights up around it, that's when you can buzz in. One of the things I was having an issue with was just trying to get my timing down. So one of the assistant producers told me just, when you look at it, read the question, and then once you finish hearing him read and you see the light, that's when you buzz in. And then it all started coming into the place because that first episode, I was struggling that first half. Uh, and I was only getting the questions as what they would call now the last trash, which most people don't know on Jeopardy. Last trash is when all three people get stumped. Normally they call it the triple stumper. But then all of a sudden mm-hmm. those questions, I was starting to pick those up and I was starting to beat people on the buzzer and, Things started coming together. I started hitting rhythms. I get rebound questions, and it started changing the whole perspective. And it's something they, especially, of course, as a result of Ken Jennings, that's when they started doing all the uh, the rehearsals, just practicing with the buzzer because some people didn't do that. And one of the things they've done now is when you go to any type of tryout, Jeopardy trials, Porsche Jeopardy, Teen Tournament or whatever, they have pens, and they're basically designed to look just like the buzzer. So they have their yeah, red yeah. button that you would push in, and that was basically everybody used that as an example when they play. And I think it's a huge thing, especially getting adjusted to the buzzer. Yeah. You know, I'm hearing you talk about this, and I'm just remembering, like, how much passion I had for playing and how, like, there were so many people that really got into it. And I just wish that, you know, I'm thinking at some point there has to be a way to resurrect it for like the HCAST alums or, you know, just to just a way to make it um, mainstream and um, something marketable for people to get really into. Because I could see someone feeling really wrapped up in um, watching the competition that, that goes into it. And I've kind of not really been in touch with some of the people who were as passionate about HCASC as you are and some other people I know were, but it, it would, I, you know, it's surprising to me that it hasn't resurrected in a form where like HCASC alums can participate as a player and not necessarily as just someone that comes to moderate or just to watch other college students compete. Cause it's a lot of fun and it can get really exciting to watch 
Yeah, and the withdrawal, oh my gosh, the withdrawal can be really bad because after that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once you get to that after nationals, man, Mm -hmm. it's like, what do I do next? Yeah, you still have like a month and a half left of school and you're like, oh God. Okay, what's next? Finals. Okay, that's still no challenge. Yeah, it's it's sort of a bummer. And like, you know, I have to say I haven't found anything quite like it that I feel like I connected with as much as I did with that specific, you know, I, I felt like it was more than a hobby. And sometimes I wonder if I took it way too seriously. And I, I, doubt, I feel like I probably did, uh, much to the dismay of my, <laughs> my poor teammates and like whoever else I, you know, was just like, oh God, I wish she would just kind of lay off it, you know? But again, like I do wish, and maybe this is something we can make into a reality someday if we find enough people who are interested that there is a way to resurrect HCASP or reformat it for people who um, just really enjoy trivia and competing because there isn't really anything quite like it. Yeah, and I know they have all those other things, the NCT and all those other ones. Some people <laughs> and, uh, tend to be in it for more of the question-writing aspect as opposed to the, the game-playing. A lot of people like making these elaborate questions, so far smaller than you see on Jeopardy or, or on an HCAST. And I think it's while that's another aspect of the knowledge thing where they just like stacking the information into it, I think that's sometimes overkill. I'm all about the game. And I think you can find probably enough alums. The only problem is I feel like then all of a sudden it's the same situation and everybody starts getting back into it. It's like probably maybe not the the best term to use, but a drug addict who's been clean for 15 years and all of a sudden something just tempts him to get back on it. I don't know what it would be, but I think it's one of those things where, honestly, with enough alums, I think you can get enough people to put something together, even if it's something once a year or once every two years. You, I think there's enough people, and I think we all know enough people who know enough people who know enough people who probably still would miss that fix as well. Yeah, like I think, um, you know, we'd have to find a, a way to structure it and how to get enough people to participate in it and then there'd have to be people who would be like the question writers for it we'd have to find a venue for it like like all of those little details but you know like just in the spirit of coming together in a competition and to have a a fun teamwork element to it too you know like there's just so many different little nuances that that particular competition fostered that I really appreciated. And like the older I get, the more (laughs) I feel like that people have just moved on with their lives to do really great things. They have like established careers now. They have like different hobbies and interests that are pulling them in different directions. But, you know, they all seem to really enjoy doing this. And, you know, I hate to have it be something where I'm like, it's just something I can reminisce about and be like, man, I really enjoyed doing that. And so that's what it's become now for me. I like look back and I'm like, that was really fun part of my life. And I have a few people that I still am in touch with from, from being part of that. 
Yeah, it was very fun experience, and I, and I always feel like even if it isn't something on a national scale, I think you get enough people in the region. Somebody probably has a hookup with um, with some technology who can find a lockout system or a few lockout systems, and like just in the Maryland, Delaware, Virginia area, I think with all the HBCUs from Howard to Hampton to UMES, Virginia State, I think there's so many HBCUs that you can get a little bit of alums there, and some people from North Carolina might might come in Delaware State. And I think even just something small and something small in a region to like have it in DC or have it in Baltimore or have it somewhere that, that works that, that would be great. I think everything starts out small. I think if something were like that were to happen, you have to just just have small expectations. And if you exceed those, then hey, that's a good thing to learn from. Then you can just prepare for the next year. I think that that's something that would be great if it if it ever happens and and I think all it takes is the old shampoo commercial. I tell two friends, they tell two friends, they tell two friends, and so on. It could be something that happens, and you never know. It it all depends. And I think if there's enough enthusiasm, I could probably think of shoot, we could probably feel the team of UMS alums that that would probably gladly play. And shoot, I can probably think of like seven people, and you know, yeah, and, I'm definitely us. down for that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I'd be happy to um, reconnect with whoever would be interested in forming a team and and you know, finding enough people who'd want to compete and um, throwing something for, together for that. And something I've been trying to work at is just narrowing my focus to stuff I can realistically accomplish because I just, you know, like I hate starting something and then not being able to finish it. Like it's it's just been one of my pet peeves. So if this is something that people are serious about, then I'm really open to doing whatever it takes to move forward with it. I've always been curious to show down. I always wanted to, you know, how they always have the sort of test of wills. I've always been curious to play a game against you just to see because I, I feel like and, and, you know, the older we get, you know, our brains tend to start to slowly rot away as it seems just because of age and outside influences and other things. I always wondered what it would be like because we never got a chance to play on a team. We never got a chance to play against each other. I played against other teammates and things like that just to see what it was like because we used to do a variety of different things in practice. We do mm-hmm. like a king of the hill where, you know, everybody keeps going. The person who keeps answering the questions, they keep going until that person, the next person knocks them off and it keeps going so on and so on. But I always wonder what it had been like playing against you. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I mean, now it's been so long since I've studied for something like this that, like, I wouldn't hand you, like, an easy victory if I could help it. But, like, you know, it's just been such a long time. But obviously having some sort of reunion where we were all able to compete against each other would be fun. And I... I want to be sincere when I say that, but then part of me is thinking, like, how would, like, is that even a realistic thing? Because, <laughs> I mean, I would really love to do that. I think it would be fun just to get together with people and go to, like, a trivia night or something. And I did try to do that for a while. Like, I had a few weeks, like, a year or two ago where, like, I was going, and then I made some friends that I became part of, like, a trivia group with. And then, like, I recently checked on Facebook and and the couple at the center of our group is now moving to Denver. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I haven't seen them in about, like, a year or two. And, um, and now they're moving away. So I'm going to have to find some new people. And, and that's been kind of difficult, too, is, like, I do have a couple friends that I I regularly hang out with 
in the area. But like for something like that, um, I don't have like a really deep, meaningful friendship, so to speak, with anybody that kind of has that exact same interest. Not that I expect all of my relationships to be necessarily deep and meaningful, but sometimes you just have people that you're part of the team with and then you you have that kind of intimacy from being on a team together and then like working together that you just don't really have in other parts of your life. Yeah, and I just think about it, man. Honestly, HCAS is the only reason I stayed at UMS. I was about to transfer to Salisbury University uh, after my freshman year. I just didn't like UMS. I just sort of wasn't happy with it. There was a lot of things I felt like I wanted to pursue a major in broadcasting, and I didn't feel like UMS had it. And I basically, I got accepted, and I was thinking about it. And all of a sudden, I guess, I know, I decided to stay. And then that year we did HCAS. We were in the quarterfinals. And then the next year we went to the championship match, won game one, and lost the last two. But uh, it was, uh, you know, I think that's really the only reason I stayed there. But then, like I said, found a lot of good friends there at UMES, even outside of HCAS, got into radio, my connections there helped me uh, get in the field of journalism, a field that honestly I wasn't really expecting at the time, and it got me into it. And then, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, as a newspaper reporter, I would plan my schedule around trivia nights, you know, some nights Tuesday nights at one place and Wednesday nights someplace, and then those places started closing up or they stopped offering trivia. And then the one place I would normally go to, my schedule got changed and my job got changed to not only was it a job I was no longer writing sports, I was stuck to a desk, couldn't do anything, and basically it interfered with my trivia nights. So that led to being you know, in an unhappy position, unhappy job where I couldn't do anything anymore, the things I liked anymore. I'm stuck in a job that I don't like, that I didn't want, wasn't getting paid that well, especially for the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And I'll admit yeah. since moving to Delaware, I have not checked out any trivia nights yet and just trying to to manage all those times but i do want to eventually check one out and hey who knows the idea of putting together a thing of h cask alums i think there's enough who live around the philadelphia baltimore washington area and northern virginia area who might be all for it yeah i you know i'm sure there are and so keep in mind if you decide to do something like that I feel like I'm still in touch with a lot of people. I'm sure how willing they would be to. And, um, I know that you have a, a lot of people who would probably be into it too. Yeah, and I've always wanted to reconnect with with some of my teammates after we've lost touch and stuff like that. As we start wrapping this episode up, and I do really do appreciate you coming on the show. I know we've been trying to get this going for a long time. What are some mm-hmm. ways that people, are you big on social media? And if so, what are some ways people can reach out to you to say hello and, and discuss things that they may have heard on this episode? Um, I guess you have my number and everything. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a, um, a pretty active presence there. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. But yeah, like I have like a Snapchat and Twitter and everything um, like most of the common things that people use, but I'm not really frequently on there. So it's, it probably isn't the best way of getting in touch with me, but yeah, if, you know, if there are people who 
want to reach out to me, like they can kind of reach me through you or, you know, find me on Facebook and try to talk to me there. So thanks so much again for having me on here. Like I'll be happy to talk with you again. And that was my interview with Meredith Escara. I hope you enjoyed it. If you know someone who might like this episode or any of our previous episodes, please feel free to share. Next time, it's an all-star episode as we'll have our inaugural Sports Refuge Fantasy Thanksgiving Draft featuring several past guests on the Sports Refuge podcast, including Ben Penserka, Vanessa Junkin, Mitchell Northam, as well as several other guests new to the show. You can find this episode and previous episodes of the podcast on the Sports Refuge website, or you can subscribe to the show wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.